Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Shalom, shalom. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tunava in Thornton, Colorado. You're listening to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. Let's open with prayer. Avinu Malkino, our Father, our King, Lord, we are very excited about what you're doing in and amongst us, in our communities and our families. Uh, Lord, we know that your precious Holy Spirit is here with us because you have promised that he would be here. You promised that you would never leave us nor forsake us, and that for that, Lord, we know, we have an assurance that uh, you are in control. We yield ourselves to you, Holy Spirit. We say, come into this room. Come into this 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 internet uh, 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 gathering and uh, fill us afresh with the light of Messiah. Cause us to, to see him and to know him and to praise him. Uh, thank you, Father, for drawing us together, Jew and Gentile, male and female, slave and free. Father, you have broken down the barriers uh, through your Son's atonement. We we know that uh, uh, you have drawn us together by your words and by your precious Spirit. Help us, Lord, to uh, continue to uh, uplift the name of Messiah, to be bold in our witness, to um, be a light to those around us who are still in darkness. Lord, give us an opportunity to witness. Help us to realize that we have been given a commission to take the good news to those who don't know. And for that reason, Lord, we ask that you would recall, uh, help us to recall the things that we're learning. This is not just an exercise in um, trivia. It's not just... Um, a social gathering that we're doing. We're not just getting together because we're old pals and old friends. But Lord, we seek to strengthen one another and to help one another to be equipped uh, to be ambassadors for your kingdom. Thank you for the book of Galatians. Bless you for um, allowing Paul to pen the words and to passionately record the thoughts that you uh, placed within him and Lord, for uh, superintending the writing so that we have it today. Uh, we know that your words are very precious, and they are living, they are dynamic, they are not just words on a page. And for that reason, we hide them in our heart. Uh, continue to heal us, Lord. Um, continue to uh, comfort us and to help us during these troubling times, even during these stressful times in America and around the world. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for all of these things. I mean, okay, um, let's date stamp the recording tonight. Thank you, everyone, for attending. Today is uh, November the 12th, 2016. And um, just a reminder, I believe we just experienced uh, daylight savings times for those of you who are in the United States and, and who observe that. And it caught me by surprise. I actually showed up an hour earlier and one of my other students reminded me, uh, hey, I think you're an hour early, so just kick back and relax for an hour, and then everyone will show up. So just a reminder to adjust your clock um, according to our study. Uh, I advertise it on the website at 7 to 8 p.m. Central Standard Time, so you'll have to adjust around that advertisement, 7 to 8 p.m., whatever that works for you in your local time. We are in week 45 of the Galatian study, and with, an, with a 180-page uh, commentary, we're around page 90 or so, so we're about halfway through the study. 
and we're really going to conclude the uh, topical section to the study. It's ten topical sections that basically are kind of a um, an intro, not really an intro, but a, a, a kind of a, um, a, a commentary within a commentary. So um, we're going to probably conclude that tonight, and then we'll be poised to start looking at the what I call the commentary proper, which is really the kind of the chapter-by-chapter chapter look at some tough select passages. But before we do so, let's open with some liturgy. I'll read some Hebrew and some Greek, and the English that goes along with both of those. For the Hebrew section, we're using, for this uh, particular topic, the familiar Birkat Torah, which you can find in your own Siddur, if you own one. Messianic Siddur will work as well, or your own traditional Siddur. Uh, let me read the English first, and then I'll jump over to the Hebrew. The English reads, Blessed art thou, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to engross ourselves with the words of Torah. Please, Lord, our God, sweeten the words of your Torah in our mouths and in the mouths of all your people, Israel. May we and our offspring and the offspring of your people, the house of Israel, may we all together know your name and study your Torah for the sake of fulfilling your desire. Blessed are you, Lord, who teaches Torah to his people, Israel. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who chose us from the nations and gave us the Torah. Blessed are you, Lord, giver of the Torah. May the Lord bless you and keep watch over you. May the Lord make his presence enlighten you and may he be kind to you. May the Lord bestow favor on you and grant you peace. Let's read the Hebrew of that section as well. Baruch atah Adonai, Elohim melecha olam asher b'achar b'nu mekol ha'amim v'natan lanu et torato. Baruch atah Adonai noten ha Torah. Yivarecha Adonai v'yish marecha. Yer Adonai panayv elecha v'chunecha. Yisa Adonai panayv elecha v'yasim lecha shalom. And let's turn now to our passage from the Apostolic Scriptures. We'll this will probably be the last time we reuse this passage uh, for our liturgy, at least for this section. This is Galatians 3 in the first 14 verses we've been choosing because of essentially the section from Paul on uh, Paul of uh, Abraham as the father of Jew and Gentile, justified by faith, not by works or by, uh, uh, by obedience or by um, inclusion to the people group of God or anything, any such thing. So let's read this passage. This is ESV. <clears throat> and it reads like this. O foolish Galatians, Paul starts out, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And then Paul starts re, uh, bringing in Abraham. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture seeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And we continue in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. End quote. Okay, let's turn to the Greek of that same passage. Let me just bring up the uh, interlinear version. Oh, where do we have it? Uh, give me a moment here. There we go. All right, uh, and for those of you who are in the class, live with me via Skype, you should be seeing on your screen an interlinear of um, some Greek. I'll be reading the black part right in the middle of the Greek. Uh, above that is a transliteration, below that is an English translation, and below that is the uh, uh, what I call the parsings or the, uh, the, the, the conjugations, all the parts of speech that each word shows up in. But let's start in the Greek. It reads, O anoitoi galatai tisumas abaskunen, te aletheia me petestai hois katafomus, Jesus Christos prographi estoromenos. Verse 2. Tuta manan thelo mathen af human ex ergonamu to pnuma elabate e ex aques pistios. Verse 3. Hutas anaitoi este enaxarmanoi pnumati nun sarki epiteleste. Verse 4. To sauta epathete eke e gekai eke. Verse 5. Haun epicorgon human to pnuma kai in ergon dunames en human. Human ex ergon namu e ex aquis pistios. Verse 6. Kathas Abraham epistusen to theu kai ye logiste auto eis decausunen. Verse 7. Genas gnoskite arahati hoi ek pistios. Hut hoi huioi eisen Abraham. Verse 8. Produce de he grafe hati ek. Pistios de kaioi ta ethne ha theos pro u en gelisato to Abraham hati in yulogoi thesantai in soi panta ta ethne. Verse 9 haste hoi ek pistios yuloguntai soon to pisto Abraham. And now let's jump to verse 10. Hosoi, gar ex ergonamu eisen hupokataran eisen gegraptai, gar hati epikataratas, pas has uk emenoi, pasentois gegramenois, into biblio tu namu, tu poesaiota. Verse 11. Hati de enamo, udes decautai, para to theodelon hati ho decaias, epistio zesetai. Verse 12. Ho de namas, uk, estin, ek pistios, al ho puiesai zauta zesetai in autois. Verse 13. Christas hemas exagorstin ek tes karatas tu namu, genamenas huper hemon, katarahati gegraptai, epikataratas pas ho kremamenas epixulu. And the final pasuk. Uh, the final verse, 14. Hina eis ta ethne, he eulogia, tu Abraham genetai, en Jesu Christa, Christo, I'm sorry, hina ten evangelion tu penumatas labomen diates pistios. And that'll be our Greek for the night. I hope you're enjoying the liturgy. Uh, for those of you who can read or are studying Hebrew and Greek, I enjoy reading the liturgy. Um, helps me to practice and helps me to... Uh, provide what I call an audio file for those of you who would like to hear some approximation of Hebrew or Greek, at least as best as I can make it out. So, let's jump over into the commentary. Uh, those of you who were with me last week or have been uh, following the commentary will recall that we left off near the uh, bottom of page 88 with the paragraph that we just read about one Torah theology and replacement theology. And so we're about to finish this section. Let's pick up the reading now right near the bottom with this paragraph entitled, uh, or this question that is entitled, What is your response to someone who says that the Jews should keep Torah, but the Gentiles are only divinely invited to keep it, but are not required to do so? 
Now, before I read my own answer, what I want you to be aware of is that essentially the position entitled divine invitation is a basically a view that has been popularized lately by First Fruits of Zion, FFOZ. And it's not always been that way, as I understand. FFOZ used to hold to what we might label the, um, one law theology, that is, one Torah, the same Torah, for both Jews and Gentiles to follow after, before they decided to adopt the position known as divine invitation. Now, you may be asking yourself, what does divine invitation mean? What does it refer to? Um, well, I decided to pull up a, um, a brief... Uh, look at divine invitation before I read my own answer. And I think it's best to let the folks who um, champion that position define it for themselves. So for those of you who are with me live, look at your screen. I've got FFOZ's uh, questions page pulled up uh, for us right now. And they've got some kind of FAQs. And uh, one of the questions is entitled, Is the Torah for Gentiles? So let's click on that. It's a short read. I think I can read this. Um, for the Galatian study, and I'll read this first so you can kind of get an idea of what divine invitation is all about, and then I'll present the opposite uh, position, which is uh, one law. And I want to let you know up front that I am a one law advocate. That is, I believe that the Torah teaches that there is one law for Jew and Gentile to follow. I don't believe that, that God gives two um, different types of uh, blueprints for living. Uh, I don't believe that the Torah is... Uh, for Jews only, at least parts of it. So let's read FFOZ's position first, and then I'll offer my own refutation, as it were, kind of a very s simplified uh, refutation of it. Uh, FFOZ asks the question, is the Torah for Gentiles? And here's their short answer. Straight from their website, you can find them online, ffoz.org forward slash questions. The Torah was given to the Jewish people as a sacred covenant. Nevertheless, Gentiles are included in the Torah, and Gentile believers are obligated to keep many of the Torah's commandments. The Torah assumes a basic level of ethical monotheism from Gentiles. For example, the story of Noah tells about God punishing Gentiles for robbery, violence, and sexual uh, decadence, and in that story, God gives specific commandments to Noah and his sons about food, murder, and justice. Judaism refers to these laws as the seven laws of Noah. And then we've got a list here. Number one, do not worship idols or other gods. Number two, do not blaspheme God's name. Number three, do not murder. Number four, do not commit sexual immorality. Number five, do not steal. Number six, do not eat things while they are al still alive, i.e. with uh, don't eat meat with blood. And number seven, establish courts of justice. FFOZ goes on to say... The apostles taught that in addition to the basic laws of ethical monotheism, Gentile believers in Yeshua should also keep the commandments that applied to a stranger sojourning among Israel by keeping the Torah's prohibitions on ingesting blood, improperly slaughtered meat, things contaminated by contact with idolatry, and by adopting the Torah's definition of sexual immorality and observing those prohibitions. And they uh, reference Acts 15 as well as Leviticus 17 through 18. They go on to say, in addition to this, the apostles taught that Gentile believers in Yeshua should keep all the commandments of the Torah that pertain to loving one's fellow. And then we've got a quote from Romans 13, 9 through 10. It reads, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the Torah. End quote. Uh, FFOZ goes on to conclude, the apostles did not require Gentile believers to adopt the specific Torah practices unique to the Jewish people, such as circumcision, Sabbath, holy days, Levitical rituals, etc., but neither did they discourage Gentiles from participating along with them in the Sabbath, Holy Days, and Jewish life. When a Gentile becomes a believer, he receives a divine mandate to keep the laws that apply to him as a Gentile 
and a divine invitation, there's their title, to celebrate with the Jewish people the laws that apply to the Jewish uh, people. The Torah invites Gentiles to participate, is their closing statement. Okay, so that's Ephesus' position, and in all fairness, there's a, there's a lot of good that is being taught in their statement. Um, you know, it, it, when compared to the historic Christian position that the law has been either relaxed in Jesus or done away with, superseded by Messiah, um, uprooted by Paul's apostle uh, epistles or something to that effect, um, at least the FFOZ divine invitation position brings Torah back into the practical everyday scope of Gentile sanctification as they walk out God's words. So, I mean, to that regards, I understand their, I, at least I think I understand their intentions behind uh, taking the position that they do, at least to try and say, look, the church has abandoned Torah for um, in favor of man-made laws or in favor of, of quote-unquote being led by the Spirit. And at least we're trying to bring Torah back into the uh, scope, back into the argument, back into uh, the view. So I have to respect that that attempt. Um, but I think there's a better way to uh, bring Torah back into the life of a Gentile believer in Messiah, and that is to simply bring the whole Torah instead of bringing parts of it, instead of adopting a Torah is for Jews only position, which, as I understand it, is essentially the the traditional rabbinic position, the rabbinic Jewish <coughs> excuse me, traditional uh, Jewish position that the Torah is, was and is for Jews only, and that Gentiles aren't essentially invited. So now let's turn to my commentary and pick up my uh, own thoughts. Uh, remember, this is part of a, uh, a transcript um, of an interview that I conducted with Caleb Hegg, son of Tim Hegg, and we conducted this interview a few years ago probably two or three years ago, and uh, it has been made available on Caleb's website at uh, One Law, uh, I'm sorry, One Torah, uh, I think it's OneTorah.com, or it might be OneLaw.com, I apologize, I'm drawing a blank at the moment. Um, you can just Google search uh, Caleb Hegg One Law, and you'll find his website there, the link for it. And then you can um, just click on the video section and you can watch the interview that I did because we did it via Skype uh, video. So my question, or Caleb's question, uh, what's my response to someone who says that the Jews can keep Torah, uh, but that the Gentiles are only divinely invited to keep Torah? Essentially, this is an answer to FFOZ's position. It reads, here's my answer. This answer is going to be a bit longer than the previous ones. While it is true that the Torah is a unique covenant document intended for God's intimate covenant bride Israel, as over and against the world in general, who is not in covenant with God as his bride, it behooves the careful Berean student of scriptures to accurately define Israel's identity first before one can accurately apply God's Torah equally and covenantally to each and every member within. All right, so let's read this. As I understand it, the basis for New Testament Gentile Christians merely being, quote, invited, end quote, to follow Torah, contrasted with the Jews ostensibly being, quote, covenant-bound, end quote, to follow it, must be based on the foundation of the Tanakh in order for the logic to be sound. In other words, uh, if we're going to, as Christians, um, take our theology from the New Testament, so to say, right, the apostolic scriptures, we must remind ourselves that firstly... The theology of the New Testament is squarely rooted, or at least it should be, according to our understanding, is squarely rooted on the theology of the Old Testament, so to say, the so-called Old Testament. So any theology that Paul is going to present to us in his letters should be uh, borrowed from the uh, Tanakh itself. And that's what I'm trying to say. So here's what I say. However, careful exegesis will show that despite how one defines historic Israel, right? despite how you de decide to slice and dice Israel, in point of fact, she was never divinely invited, quote-unquote, by God to keep his Torah. I think that's a, a good place to start. God didn't say to Israel, you are divinely invited to keep my ways. 
It's actually quite a little more uh, pointed than that. Uh, The covenant treaty language simply does not read that way, right, in point of fact. On the contrary, I say God and Israel entered into a covenant arrangement with each other in which Israel for her part stated, and you'll remember this from reading the book of Exodus, quote, all that you have said we will do. All that you said we will do, end quote. That's Israel's response to God's uh, presenting the covenant to them. I go on to say, the unified language of the agreement between God and Israel paints a picture of lifelong commitment and promise on Israel's part to keep their side of the contract made between God and themselves, even if we know, looking back in hindsight, that they would actually fail to keep their side of the covenant time and time again. Yeah, that's right. They said, all that you've said we will do, God, and then it wasn't shortly thereafter, that they're down playing the uh, playing the harlot by uh, dancing around the golden calf. You know, they're still at the foot of Sinai when they built that thing. You know, Moses hadn't even returned from the mountain, and they're down there playing the idol, the, the idolater, uh, whoring around with with idols, with with golden uh, calves and such. So we know that they failed in their agreement. We know that they failed in their uh, promise. But that doesn't change the fact that it is a covenant. It was a contract that was being drawn up. It was, in other words, I'm trying to say that I don't think the language of the Torah, as we read about the uh, contract that's being uh, ratified at Mount Sinai, I don't think that the language uh, uses this this idea of divinely invited. Rather, it's it really is a divine mandate. It is a covenant. It's a contract. It's in other words, it's stronger than an invitation. It's it actually is contractual language. It's marriage language that's being drawn up. And so I go on to say that um, even though Israel failed time and time again, that's not the first time they would fail, right? Just read through the rest of the uh, the Tanakh, through the old scriptures, right? through. Just keep reading past the five books into Joshua and Judges and, and the rest. And you, you'll, you just have to shake your head, oy vey. Um, Israel just fails over and over again. Nevertheless, I go on to say God never and the word never there is capitalized, God never reneged on his part, right? Thank goodness he didn't. He was always faithful to keep his part. Viewpoints other than our own, other than, in this in this sense, other than the one law position, viewpoints other than this often start with the premise that Israel is a separate entity from the church and that the Torah was contractually given to Jewish-only Israel. So I think that's possibly where FFOZ has borrowed their theology by, uh, as I understand it, perhaps adopting traditional Jewish uh, theology that teaches that the Torah was for Jews only, or that the church and the Jews are, uh, church and the Israel are two separate entities. Or to put it another way, conventionalism states that while the church may in fact contain ethnic Jews who have come to faith in Jesus, Historic Israel was and is supposed to be a Jewish-only culture, viz. the Torah is primarily for Jews only. So, I think that's where FFZ starts. That's their that's one of their main uh, arguments, is that the Torah was and is for Jews only, or that it was given to Jews only. At the very least, I go on to say, such views certainly purport that specific commandments are contractually for Jews only. And then, um, I give... Uh, circumcision is one example. Parts of this thesis, right, the divine invitation, uh, parts of this thesis seem to be shared by mainstream rabbinic Judaism as well. So by adopting the divine invitation position the way they do, FFOZ has, I'm not sure if they know it or not, but they have essentially um, allied theirself, uh, aligned themselves with mainstream Judaism, rabbinic Judaism more closely on this particular topic of uh, for whom was the Torah given and to whom is is who is uh, um, required or allowed to keep it. Let's keep reading my own commentary. Like divine invitation advocates, however, one law. Uh, let me pause for a moment. This next uh, paragraph starts to recognize that there are some similarities between one law advocates and divine law. Uh, I'm sorry, divine invitation. Advocates, right? The two theological positions are not—they're ex- not really mutually exclusive. Uh, There's some overlap, so let's let's at least recognize the overlap. So, like divine invitation advocates, however, one law believes 
that the family of Israel is a bouquet of Jews plus those from the nations that God has brought into Israel through Yeshua. And I believe that that is in distinction to rabbinic Judaism's view. I think they, they really still uh, toe a very strong a Jewish only Israel position, but one law breaks with I'm sorry, a divine invitation breaks with rabbinic Judaism on this very important point, and I th- I, I I commend them on for that. I go on to say uh, the challenge when we're talking about this idea of Israel being Jew and Gentile, the challenge comes from the fact that a cursory reading of the Tanakh does in fact portray Israel as primarily composed of Jews, and that there's nothing wrong with this picture. So when you read through your Old Testament you get this sense that that Israel's a Jewish-only set, right? At least that's how historic Israel has kind of read their scriptures, and that's probably why they come to the conclusion uh, that that uh, Israel is Jewish-only. And you read through the through the Tanakh, and you kind of Israel Jewish Israel is kind of the, the focus, right? They're the forefront. So there's nothing wrong with the, with that picture, uh, so much as we just need to understand that Gentiles are there. They're just not in the forefront. They're kind of in the background. But they are there. However, as I say, this only shows that the mystery of Gentile engrafting was hidden down through the ages. And that's where, why we're having this discussion about one law, about Jew and Gentile and the body of Messiah, how we uh, fit together with one another as one new man, because of the way it plays into our um, reading and understanding and interpretation of Paul's letters, particularly the book of Galatians. Right? Paul introduces this idea of of um, a mystery in the book of Ephesians. And so we know that that theology is present in Galatians, even though it's not articulated in Galatians. We know that Paul still has this idea in his mind that Jew and Gentile are being brought together, and so that's why he's writing the way he's writing in the book of Galatians. Let's keep reading. Paul clearly says uh, that Gentile inclusion into Israel via Messiah was a mystery. Recall, say, Ephesians chapter 2 and Ephesians chapter 5. So, even though it's a mystery, it therefore is not supposed to be clearly seen in the Old Testament. Right? Understand? So, Paul calls it a mystery, and we know that um, the New Testament use of the word mystery there in English, I think it's musterion in the Greek, is a reference to something that is was present in the time period before Messiah, but was purposely concealed by God himself. So we know that there are additional mysteries, not just the mystery of Jewish and Gentile um, um, uh, inclusion, or Gentile inclusion to Israel, I should say. Not just that mystery, but we know that there is the mystery of Messiah himself, the mystery of of how the Messiah would be revealed to his people Israel. We know that that was a mystery, the mystery of salvation. Uh, so there there are these mysteries, these, these truths that God... Um, uh, hid from mankind, hid from the Jewish people. And again, the, the important point to recall is that uh, just because God hid it doesn't mean that it was non-existent. And that's what I'm going to say right here in my next sentence. Right? Paul talks about uh, Gentile inclusion into Israel as a mystery, but that doesn't mean that Gentile inclusion in Israel was non-existent. The way that rabbinic Judaism purports today, that Gentiles were not included in Israel. And so I hope, I'm, I'm happy to hear that uh, the FFOZ position breaks with rabbinic Judaism on this extremely important point. I go on to say, to be sure, if we examine the text using eyes opened by the Ruach HaKodesh, right, opened by the Holy Spirit, we find that those who joined Israel's God and her covenant were called Ger in the Hebrew script. Right? If you go back and read the Hebrews, the Hebrew verses that talk about the uh, Gentiles, uh, the ethnicities that were um, coming alongside of Israel and partici- participating in, in the uh, covenants that God was making with Israel. Um, we, the, the Hebrew uses gear. Recall my verse from Exodus mentioned earlier, the one I read at the beginning, or rather that I read last week, the beginning of my interview with, with Caleb. The gear is enjoined by Hashem to keep the very same Torah that native-born sons of Jacob are to keep. At least in that one single passage, which um, understandably is a reference directly to the uh, the Passover 
commandments, the Passover instructions that were being given to Israel that night as they were still in Egypt waiting to uh, be set free at that 10th plague, right, the death of the firstborn in Exodus chapter 12. That's where we get that verse. Let me just scroll up in my commentary for those of you who are in the um, study with me tonight and, and uh, recall. It's Exodus 12, uh, 49. One law shall be to him that is homeborn and unto the stranger, right? We see that English word stranger there in this verse. Unto the stranger that sojourneth among you. And in the Hebrew, the um, the homeborn is the Ezrach, uh, la Ezrach in Hebrew. Torah achat yie la Ezrach, right? One law for the uh, homeborn, the Ezrach. And then the, the verse says, v'lagir. And the ger, this part right here uh, in the Hebrew, these two letters, v'lagir hagar betocham. I'm sorry, Betuchem. So, one law for both the Ezrach and for the Ger who gars. We, we kind of have a doubling of the Hebrew word, the Ger who gars, which translates into English as stranger who sojourns, um, stranger who estranges himself, or uh, the sojourner who sojourns, if you, however you want to translate it, the one who sojourns among you. God's speaking to Israel. And so the Ezrach is the native-born, the home-born, and the Ger is the stranger. So now we can see how that this passage uh, is really, really in, in, in all fairness, the, the verse that I highlighted is uh, intended to be understood directly within the Passover commandments that we read about in Exodus chapter 12. But we know that this is just one of many passages where we find the Ger um, uh, joining Israel, uh, joining his Jewish counterpart, if I could use the word Jewish there, and I hope you don't misunderstand, joining his uh, Jewish counterpart in keeping the commandments of the Torah, not just the Passover commandments, but um, the sacrifices, the, uh, the laws pertaining to ritual purity when it comes to bringing sacrifices into the temple, uh, the laws pertaining to um, uh, the festivals and things like that. So we, we can see really that it's the, the gear is covenantally bound. He's covenantally bound. So... Um, Let's go back to where we left off in this commentary in this particular section. Um, so we're here in this uh, paragraph here. Uh, let's see where did I left leave off. Uh, we find that gear in the Hebrew. Okay, so the gear, as I say here, is enjoined by Hashem to keep the very same Torah that native-born sons of Jacob are to keep. The native-born sons of Yaakov are the Ezrach. What is more, I go on to say, when we recall that it was not just sons of Yaakov that participated in Yitzit Mitzrayim, right, the exodus from Egypt, then we begin to understand that the paradigm for God bringing those from the nations, the, uh, the Ger, those from the nations, into his covenant people Israel began way back at the foot of Sinai rather than in the book of Acts. And that's the point I want to highlight uh when we start looking at one law versus divine invitation, where did the invitation begin? If it is, if indeed it is an, a divine invitation, did God invite the Gentiles way back in the book of Exodus, or did he divinely invite them in the book of Acts? And Christian theology would, would say, well, the book of Acts is the beginning of the church, and it's the beginning of the end of Israel. It's the beginning of the church replacing Israel. And therefore, there's really no invitation for Gentile Christians to even consider embarking down the path of Torah observance because it, it marks a break, a shift in, in um, what we call uh, dispensations. Divine invitation, I believe they uh, hold to the idea that Gentiles from the beginning, at least from the book of Exodus, were in fact divinely invited to participate. But the way I see it is actually that Gentiles were not divinely invited to participate in Israel's laws, but were in fact covenantally bound to participate in Israel's laws. And so this brings us full circle as I near the end of this section. Top of page 90. If one's Torah, if one Torah's thesis is correct, the position that I'm purporting tonight, 
If it is correct that Gentile Christians join Jewish Christians to form the church, a.k.a. remnant Israel, and remnant Israel exists within the greater commonwealth of unbelieving Israel, right? Got this kind of a, a nesting going on. Then greater Israel's obligation to Torah must necessarily extend to remnant Israel as well. And why would that be? It's because remnant Israel belongs to greater Israel, the greater commonwealth of Israel, albeit the greater unbelieving part of Israel. So Israel, by and large, does not embrace Messiah. That's not a mystery. Everyone knows that. And yet remnant Israel is part of this tree. Now I know some of you might be thinking, well, remnant Israel is separate from uh, uh, unbelieving Israel. Well, yes, they are. They are separate in the, in the sense that they believe in Messiah and that um, unbelieving Israel doesn't believe. But I think we're still joined to the same covenant tree that is Father Abraham's offspring. If I were to identify the tree of Romans chapter 11 as Father Abraham's, as Father Abraham, uh, really the patriarchs, if I were to define the tree as, say, maybe the patriarchs or the family of Abraham, or what we, I think the language that Tim Hague uses is the visible covenant people of God in any uh, particular generation that's in focus, uh, then we could rightly say that um, the tree, the, the olive tree of, of Romans chapter 11, does include believing and unbelieving Jews. It's simply that the uh, the remnant Jews and Gentiles are enjoying the nourishment of the uh, the true sap, which is Messiah, which of course comes from the root. It means that from the beginning, the the rich root, I'm sorry, the rich sap of the Messiah has really been running through Abraham's veins uh, from the beginning because Abraham believed in the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness. Remember, if Abraham is the uh, 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 Abraham forms part of the root system of, uh, of the olive tree, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the roots of this great olive tree, the family of Israel. Then the truth of Messiah has been running through them uh, from the word go. So it's not that the tree started out as an unbelieving tree and then somehow uh, believing branches got grafted in later on down the line, rather, it's that the belief in, the belief in Messiah, the, the genuine belief in God, was there from the beginning because of God's recognition of Abraham's genuine faith. Recall Genesis 15. So Paul uses that central truth of Abraham's genuine faith and faithfulness to launch into his discussion of in Galatians chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4 of how Jews and Gentiles, who are in fact part of the remnant, are identified as genuine offspring of Abraham and thus genuine inheritors of the promises made to Abraham through the Messiah, Yeshua. Is everyone following along with me so far? So it is within that theology of one people group uh, known as the remnant, one uh, unified people of the sons of Abraham that are uh, the remnant, Jews and Gentiles and Messiah. It is within that theology that Paul can express the idea that there's uh, one law, at least I, as I understand, one law, one covenant, uh, one um, one inclusion, uh, one recognition of the uh, justification process that we enjoy. So, um, that's essentially um, that's essentially my take on one law. And uh, I know there are going to be uh, some opposition to this position. I'm fine with that. Um, as long as we're able to uh, respectfully have... Uh, say, a discussion about this without attacking one another. I think it's 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 uh, healthy to have uh, some disagreement. I'm fine with that. So if you disagree with my position and you're listening to this commentary after the fact and you want to write in to me and, and discuss the finer points, um, feel free to drop me an email at my website, uh, yeshua613hotmail.com, and um, I'd be more than happy to uh, explain a little bit better. I think we've got some more time in the uh, live study, though. So we've got about 15 minutes. Let's turn now to um, introducing this uh, this excursus that really forms the second half of the 180-page written commentary to this Galatians. Um, this next section is entitled Excursus Select Tough Passages. And basically, as I say, this extended excursus 
focuses primarily on the verses from Galatians that have traditionally divided the Messianic movement from historic Christianity or or have uh, proved, as I say, to be difficult interpreting in historic context, historical context. Um, unfortunately, it does not examine every single verse of the book of Galatians. If you want an, an exhaustive verse-by-verse look at the book of Galatians, um, you're going to find one in just about every Christian comment, uh, Christian bookstore. But I also highly recommend, say, Tim Haig's commentary or um, maybe... Um, uh, let's see, I think uh, Mark Spurlock, uh, Rick Spurlock, I'm sorry, Rick Spurlock does a, an excellent verse-by-verse commentary uh, if you want to Google search his name online. Or drop me, a, drop me an email and I'll share with you uh, whatever resources that I'm aware of that are messianic. Okay, Let's read uh, this section. It's, it's really short. It's actually only one page because it really is just the doorway to the Galatians commentary proper, which... I think we actually might take a bite out of tonight. So, let's read this. We're on uh, page 91, near the top. In this extended excursus to exegeting Galatians and its famous tough verses and phrases, right, tough passages, I wish to draw the students' attention to various passages that have traditionally, traditionally led Christianity towards a passive or what I call negative view of Judaism, Torah, or both. Such verses, when removed from the larger context of either Paul or the situation facing the new believers in Galatia, uh, will usually make Paul out to be the inventor of a new religion called Christianity, a religion viewed as superior to Judaism and the Torah that upholds it. However, since we have indeed shared what I call the proper historical and theological background to the Apostle, and as circumstances, as best as I can make, right? I'm open to uh, further growth in this area, but I think we have uh, begun to have a better historical and theological approach now. With that in view, I think we're now ready to read these verses, indeed the whole letter afresh, with new understanding. To be sure, the context, I think, will reveal that in the end, Shaul personally championed the cause of biblical Judaism and Torah true obedience to God and his Messiah. And when I say biblical Judaism there in my uh, commentary, I think you should understand that in my opinion, biblical Judaism and biblical Christianity are one and the same. And the, of course, the distinction is in the phrase biblical Judaism, as in contrast to today's traditional Judaism or rabbinic Judaism or even historic Christianity. I think um, those descriptions of Christianity and Judaism, that is, historic Judaism, historic Christianity, I think they have departed somewhat from the biblical versions of Judaism and biblical Christianity. So in essence, the first century view of Judaism slash Christianity, in my understanding, is really the more historically accurate and proper theological version that believers should be familiar with and should be practicing. Um, so I hope you, you're understanding what I mean by that. I go on to say what is more, when properly interpreted along their first century theological and sociological lines, these particular pasukim, these verses, clearly, I say clearly, envision a closely knit Torah community unified under one Messiah and one Torah for both Jew and Gentile alike. In other words, I firmly believe that the book of Galatians uh, does not teach the abrogation of Torah. I also firmly believe that the book of Galatians does not suppose a, uh, a, a bilateral ecclesiology. In other words, I don't believe that the Torah allows for Jews and Gentiles to practice two separate ways of walking out the, uh, the the commandments of God. In other words, I don't believe in the historic Christian position that the law is done away with in Christ, and I don't espouse to the divine invitation position that I just read about earlier. I think Galatians um, clearly, I think it strongly um, refutes both of those positions. So let's keep reading. I'm going to spend only enough time on each verse so as to unlock the meaning for the student. If a verse contains multiple issues and warrants more attention, 
then I will allow more information to be subpoenaed. For this exercise that I'm going to embark on here in a moment, differing versions of the Bible may be utilized, but I went ahead and chose the English Standard Version, the ESV, for my primary source. My own comments and, when necessary, paraphrasing of the passages will follow immediately after each passage. So, we've got about 10 minutes left in the study. Let's uh, take a bite out of chapter 1. All right, finally, finally we have reached the book of Galatians commentary proper. So, top of page 92, for those of you who are in my live class, I should have it pulled up on the screen. Let's go. Uh, Galatians chapter 1, and we'll start out by reading the passage out of the ESV. Chapter 1, and I'm going to jump down to verse 6 and 7 out of the ESV. Quote, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And I'm going to dispense with reading the Greek uh, like I did in the liturgy. I'll just read the uh, English and that'll suffice. Here are my comments for this particular verse. Uh, these two verses, by the way. Uh, speaking of Paul, by his, quote, astonishment, and quote, taken to be rhetorical, I believe, we learn that Shaul has invested previous, I'm sorry, yeah, invested previous time and effort in these Gentile believers, perhaps having visited them twice before finally penning his letter around eighty fifty five or 56. And there's a footnote 72 that shows that according to uh, Spiros Zodiades, the complete word study New Testament commentary to the book of Galatians, on page 613, that the letter was dated to about, uh, as I mentioned, either 55 or 56. Let's continue. The villains of the piece, identified variously as agitators, Judaizers, legalizers, or influencers, have succeeded in persuading the new Gentiles that covenant standing, which is read in Christian parlance as saved, was not granted via faith in Yeshua alone, but rather, conversion to Judaism was needed to finalize the membership. Now, let me go back and um, make you all familiar with these phrases, agitators, Judaizers, legalizers, influencers. Let's look at the footnotes. Footnote number 73. Um, agitators. Uh, a handful of Bible translations use, quote, agitators, end quotes, for those whom Paul wishes would emasculate themselves in Galatians 5.12, where the Greek has... Uh, anastatuntes and um, anastatuntes is uh, where we it's translated in in English as um, agitators. All right, and then uh, let's see footnote number seventy four has Judaizers, which is another phrase I've heard very often when I'm discussing Galatians with Christians. Um, footnote number thirty four says Thayer's and Smith's Bible Dictionary, that is the TSBD, has uh, Judaizane. Uh, translated uh, Judaize, right? Which really means literally to adopt Jewish customs and rites or to imitate the Jews to Judaize. So thus we can see where people get the phrase the Judaizers because the Greek has Judaizane, right? Makes sense to me. But my, my point is that Judaizane literally means to imitate the Jews, to, to live as the Jews live. And so when we get to that verse in um, Galatians um, where we use Judaize, I think it's Galatians 2 uh, around, uh, why are you forcing the Gentiles to Judaize? When Paul was, was um, um, uh, scolding Peter in Galatians chapter 2 right around verse 13 or something like that, verse 13 or 14, we're going to look at this word Judaize again, okay? So... Uh, then we've got another phrase that shows up, legalizers. Some of you have heard this one before. Who are the villains of the piece? Well, they're the legalizers, right? There's no footnote to that, but I've heard people call them that, legalizers, because they're the ones who want to follow after legalism. That is, those are the ones who want to uh, uh, continue keeping the Torah even though they're believers, which traditional Christianity labels as legalism. All right, so that's why they're called the legalizers. And then finally, we've got the influencers, right? The influencers is a really um, particular term. Let's jump down to the footnote number 75. Influencers is actually a term that's coined by Mark Nanos and popularized by Tim Haig. And 
I like the word influencer because it's less pejorative. And what I mean by that is it 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 makes those who follow Torah less negative sounding, right? Legalizer sounds very negative, sounds very pejorative. And agitators and Judaizer, Judaizers also has this kind of this uh, Judaizer has a kind of a, a, a almost a racial slur tone to it. It's, it's I, I really it rubs me the wrong way as a Jew to be honest with you. Um, and agitators just sounds like you know a person who's a troublemaker. So influencers is a bit neutral, right? A person who's trying to influence you to do something because why not? The influence could be good or it could be bad. But if we use the term influence, it's kind of less racially charged, and so. I, I would um, welcome you to use the phrase influencers if it fits, uh, if you think it fits correctly. So, these are the quote villains of the piece, the people who that Paul, the people that Paul's opposing. Right? These are the ones who have succeeded in persuading the new Gentiles that covenant standing is based on conversion to Judaism. Let's keep reading. Shaul saw this persuasion. Right? He recognized this influence. And it's apparent successful campaign. And he's, he recognized that it was successful. And as a result, he saw it as a deserting of the one who called you. In fact, that's the phrase he uses in the, uh, 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 in the letter that we're discussing here. Right? Verse 1. I'm sorry, verse 6. I'm astonished that you were so quickly deserting him who called you. So this idea of going down the path of conversion to Judaism was a desertion of genuine uh, faith in Messiah, desertion. So I go on to say, um, uh, Paul saw this as a, uh, a desertion, and um, namely, leaving the Messiah uh, was not something that Paul wanted his, his, his uh, readers to do. He didn't want them to, to entertain this idea, even if they were uh, unaware that that's what's going on. I go on to say that because of this new errant theology, uh, which is that Gentiles must become Jews before they can achieve full and lasting covenant status by God, viz, be saved, right? They, they were essentially becoming Jews in order to become covenant members, which is equated with salvation. Because of this, uh, because this theology ran counter to the genuine good news, and what was that? That in Messiah, both Jew and Greek are on equal covenant footing. That's the genuine good news. Because of this, Shaul refers to this errant theology as, quote, another gospel, right? Euangelion, the Greek is another gospel, the news of good. The word gospel there is euangelion, not the word another. So Paul is uh, referring to this other good news, this other gospel as false, as another gospel. And it's really not good news from Paul's perspective, especially when compared to the truth, right? It's only within the perspective of the truth that we understand that the other gospel is really not good news. It's not even an additional gospel per se, because it's, this is not some sort of dualism where there really are two doors to God and it doesn't matter which door you choose, A or B, they both lead to God. That's not it at all, not according to Paul. So it's not that it's another gospel in the sense that it's another way to God, like, say, uh, you know, many of uh, world religions purport today, there's many paths to God, kind of the, the, uh, the, the sp uh, spoke wheel theory where you have a um, spokes on a wheel that are all uh, converging on a hub in the middle and in this analogy the hub is God and all of the spokes that uh, that convene in the hub are the different religions on the wheel called uh, truth and so you know we know the world teaches some of that that it doesn't matter how you get to God so uh, but that's not what Paul teaches. Paul teaches that there's only one exclusive path to God, and that's why um, he's going to champion, uh, he's going to campaign for the exclusive truth. Let's keep reading. Pertinent for our study is the historical fact that the first century Judaisms were not teaching salvation by following Torah. And I, I add, as a later emerging church might assume. And I, I really think that this is an important position that you're going to hear over and over again in my commentary about um, 
breaking from the historic view that the church thinks that the Jews of the first century were trying to keep, trying to leverage Torah to be saved, and also that the Gentiles needed to also leverage Torah in order to attain salvation. I think that's a straw man argument. I think it's a, um, I think it's a man-made argument. I don't think Paul believed in that. So let's keep reading. The other gospel that gave Shaul such consternation was the prevailing proto-rabbinic view that only Israel alone shared a place in the world to come. That is, only Jews were granted covenant membership. In this view, Gentiles must convert before they were considered full-fledged members, right? Gentiles must become Jews in order to become full-fledged Israelites. So essentially, they're joining the people group via the proselyte uh, ceremony uh, vehicle. And I go on to conclude for this particular section, in this view... Torah itself helped not necessarily to grant covenant membership to the Gentiles so much as it helped to maintain membership granted to native-born and proselyte alike. So it's essentially Torah was an addition to covenant membership that one gained by Jewish identity. And I, Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi, personally disagree with the central tenets of this view. That is, that... Um, uh, that the Torah grants covenant membership or that um, that Jewish identity grants covenant membership. Uh, I disagree with both of those positions. So I, I want to say it very clearly and then I'll go ahead and close. If you hear me talking about Torah, um, Torah obedience, just please understand that I'm referring to Torah obedience as given to existing covenant members who are genuine covenant members via faith in Messiah. I don't believe that uh, Torah obedience grants covenant membership, nor do I believe that Torah obedience actually maintains covenant membership. I don't believe in either one of those positions. Torah obedience uh, helps to um, uh, helps a person to ally themselves with the words of God so that they can be the recipient of the blessings of God. And in fact, Torah, membership, Torah obedience uh, vindicates genuine faith. So you should... In other words, it's Paul and James' argument all over again that we talked about earlier. James teaches that show me your work, show me your faith by your works. I'll show you my faith. I'm sorry, show me your show me your faith without works. I'll show you my faith by my works. That would be like me saying, I'll show you my faith by my Torah obedience. So essentially, that's what's going on. All right. Well, we took a bite out of chapter one, and uh, we'll make a break here. We'll stop here for tonight, and next week we'll be ready to pick up. Uh, near the bottom of page 92 with uh, verse 13, Galatians 1, 13. We'll start there. Let's close for now in prayer. And uh, for those of you who are with me in the live class tonight, you're uh, invited to stay for the next 10 or 15 minutes or so while we um, uh, engage in a chat and commentary and things like that. Okay, let's close in prayer. Avinum Alkenu. Our Father, our King, Lord, we're thankful and we bless you. And we know, Lord, that you are leading us down the path of righteousness. We know that you have caused us to walk righteous before you. We know that it is by your Spirit that you are raising us up and that you are preserving us in the Messiah. We know that it is because of your great love for us that you have caused us to walk into your ways. Indeed, as promised through the prophets, uh, through Ezekiel and through, through Jeremiah, you have removed the heart of stone. You have replaced it with a heart of flesh. And you have written your words on our heart. You have filled us with your precious Holy Spirit. And you have caused our minds to be centered on the Messiah. You have given us the blessings and the promise of Abraham because of this great new covenant that you have made with your son. That you have made through your son with us, with your people. Bless you, Father, for all of these wonderful truths. We thank you that... You are raising us up and causing us to be lights in this very dark world. Uh, Lord, even as we are um, reflecting on the most recent events uh, of the election in America and the uh, recent uh, unrest that has uh, um, sparked as a result of that, Lord, heal us as a country. Bring us together. Help us as a, as a, as a body, as the body of Messiah, to, to step into the mandate that uh, we have been given to be a light to the surrounding peoples. Uh, this means being a light to those who are in darkness. If we can understand why people are, 
are in darkness, why people are in fear, why people are in disarray, why people are in um, and up in arms, as it were, over the recent events, because people don't have a, a world, a Christian worldview. Many times people don't understand um, what's going on in the world, and so they are very stressed, they're very fearful, they're very confused. We have the answers, and the answers are um, preserved for us right here in the pages of your words. Help us to be bold, to give them, to share them, to teach them, to live them. Thank you, Father, for each and every student who has, uh, each and every person who has um, joined me tonight. I ask that you'll continue to bless them and raise them up in your strength. And we'll be careful, Lord, to praise you for all of these things. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth, and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations, as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com.